Welcome into I'll Have You Know. This is your co-host, David Drew Gleaver, Rice Business Class of 2012. This is a special episode. Before we get rocking here, we have a couple of folks I'd like to introduce. It does take a team to make all this stuff happen. So I'd like to introduce Tim Okabayashi, Class of 2005. And we also have Kyle Rowland on as well. Tim, do you want to say hello? Hey, David. Really excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome. Tim, also you're a member of an alumni association as well. So um, as we've been working together for almost a year now, what is it that you're excited about with this podcast and and what we're creating here? Uh, Dave, we're really excited to bring you know, these audible stories from alumni to help engage with the broader Rice MBA community. Awesome. And Kyle, we want to hear from you as well. Kyle is the Assistant Director of Alumni Relations. Kyle, you want to share a little bit about what you're excited about with I'll Have You Know? Sure. Uh, so my role is generally regional programming outside of Houston, and I'm always looking for ways to engage folks beyond just having events. So I've really enjoyed um, listening to the really great episodes that y'all have been recording, as well as interacting with folks um, on the back and on the front end, just helping to engage a greater population. Yeah, and I think engagement is really key here. And so as we're moving forward towards the alumni reunion getting together and we want to see people engage a lot more. And so uh, we're running a special drawing and Kyle, you want to share a little bit more about how we're structuring the drawing and how people can uh, cash in on the swag. Heck yeah, uh, we are running a drawing. So uh, for those of you who are listening to us, uh, we'd love if you would leave a comment or review on Apple podcasts anytime between March 1st and March 15th. Um, between anyone who's left a comment, uh, we're going to go ahead and select two winners to win a swag package that our office will send to you as a thanks for listening. There's some more details in the show notes. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but definitely check them out and go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate that. And as most folks know, we're creating a platform here. We're covering lots of business and management topics, trying to make this more and more relevant to everyone. So Leaving the comments there and subscribing was tremendously helpful to us to make this more relevant to the broader rice business ecosystem and beyond. So Tim, Kyle, thank you so much for chiming in here. Again, thank you in advance for leaving some comments and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. And without further ado, on to the show. Today on Owl Have You Know. The idea of solving problems and finding purpose around problem solving, it doesn't always have to be get rich. Being able to take a risk to do something that you're passionate about and that you personally want to solve a problem around is the right kind of risk. Welcome back to Al Have You Know, and I'm your host, David Drugleaver. And today I have with me Joan Dunlap. And Joan, uh, she is an entrepreneur and very multifaceted in the domains that she's worked in. So I'm going to leave this very open-ended today for Joan to uh, talk about her highlight reel moments and her journey uh, to where she is now. But first of all, Joan, thank you for coming in today and welcome. Good morning. Thank you. So Joan, you know, it is really a small world. So you're a uh, rice business class of 2002, if I caught that right. So there was a little bit of overlap. I had interviewed Bethany, uh, class 2001 before, and you guys either ran into each other or knew folks uh, in common, correct? I believe, uh, yeah, I believe she had uh, a family member in our class, uh, John Anzell, if I'm making that connection right. Um, 
she uh, certainly was someone who was known to my class. Uh, and I was very close to the class ahead of me. I think that there was a lot of mentoring that went on. Um, we felt connected in terms of getting advice on how to go about getting internships, how to go about getting jobs, how to go about doing well in the classes. So I think there, there, Rice does a great job of handing off the baton from class to class. And uh, that was the situation with that class as well. Yeah, it always fascinates me how small the world is. And, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, um, we can still touch on those relationships and, and leverage those. Um, so, Joan, this is, this is all about you today. And as I do my LinkedIn stalking on, uh, on your profile, uh, you're pretty multifaceted and uh, you've encountered quite a lot of culture, been to different schools and uh, gone through various career paths. Would you like to give us the either highlight reel um, you know, version of how you got here today or, or the Harbor Cruise version? Yes, and I, I will say I hope it's not all about me. I, feel, I hope that there's um, quite a bit of gratitude and um, acknowledgement for the opportunities that I've had. And some of those opportunities have been because of Rice and my classmates at Rice and the connections that we've had and made for each other. I mean, I think that that's been mutually beneficial for us as a family of, of professionals. I started out um, my career overseas. After college, I, I went to Japan and worked um, in a program that the Japanese government had set up because the economy was terrible at the time. And uh, when we came out of business school, the economy was terrible again. You know, sometimes you cannot time your education with the macroeconomic picture. And so our relationships became more solid. If you can imagine yourself on a road trip um, where you have a very smooth agenda and you get where you're going very easily and you're with some other people and that might be one story. But if you're on a road trip and you have bumps in the road and you have all kinds of chaos and you don't get to your destination smoothly, that would describe a lot more of the bonds that were created um, with me and my classmates at Rice. You're competitive with them for jobs in some sense, but you're also reliant on them for your future because you know that these are people you're going to be close to for a very long time. I just do want to acknowledge that because it, I couldn't be where I am at all without um, without that network of people that brought me to this place. And I hope it's the same for them. Yeah, I, I feel that as well. I mean, even during, um, you know, especially 2020, just making the connection with my classmates and as we're social distancing and learning about, you know, the difference, um, tribulations that we're going through. I mean, even today, we're leaning on each other and uh, supporting each other. I've had a couple of classmates that have lost their job. They have to come back from overseas and refactor their career after last year. And so those connections are, are still there and, and very much amplified. So I definitely hear what you're saying. And it's interesting how cyclical things are because at that time, for you, the economy was you know, crashing. And then for my class as well, is just right after on the coattails of the Great Recession. So we're all clutching at each other, <laughs> trying to figure out <laughs> what what happens next. Well, there's something very interesting that I think draws particular personalities to get an MBA in the first place. And there's 
uh, it's program. It's very programmatic, right? So there's an expectation that when you enter this program that you can predict with some certainty that you'll have different steps in that program to anticipate. You will get your first year under your belt. You will have a summer internship. The uh, place where you intern may or may not offer you a job, but it's more likely that they will because they're in the market for MBAs. So there is some, like, it's a very boxy format. And particularly with Rice, I think because of Rice's location, it attracts quite a few from the engineering world. And um, it's, it's methodical, calculated. And then what happens when things don't pan out? What happens when the box kind of, when all the sides of the box just fall out around you and you find yourself not in a box anymore and that structure is gone? And for people who crave that structure, I think, which describes a lot of MBA candidates, you have to be able to rely on the creativity and the imagination and problem-solving aspects of your education or even your personality to reinvent whatever your reality is. So that is what's happening right now. And frankly, it, it, there is really, the box is kind of an illusion. There is no box. And when you go into an MBA program thinking that there is one, you may or may not be, probably you won't be better off, except for the education you've gained, but better off as, from a career standpoint than without the MBA. Like you really have to, to not latch on to the security that an MBA or the MBA program that you think is there to offer you. It's, it's tapping into everyone's... Um, ability to rise above that structure because the structure is gone and what you can offer in terms of your own solutions oriented way of thinking is the best way I know how to put it is going to make the biggest difference for you so without approaching um, your career as uh, what you expected it to be or what you thought was coming next but to clean your own slate out and go okay what do I have to work with what is the world need right now? What can I do without taking on too much financial risk? And then just commit. That thought process has served me because it has allowed me to get out of the box. And investment banking was my first box. And I loved it, but it was definitely uh, a predictable career track. And um, I was able through a Rice um, contact actually to uh, get out of that um, and into something that was much more creative and solutions oriented. That's a lot to unpack there. I, I love what you had said about the box is an illusion. <laughs> and for some folks, that's what they might need at that point in their career. And then that next level, as, as you're saying, is, is breaking out of that. And that's leveraging creativity. That's leveraging your network. That's being open to for additional ideas that maybe you didn't think was on that initial track. I know for me personally, coming in with a nuclear and computer engineering degree and Navy experience into uh, the Rice experience, I had no idea. I wanted to use Rice as a springboard to widen the aperture in terms of what I would do afterwards. So we're, we're definitely simpatico in that way in terms of how we see um, sort of getting out of that that box. So and and putting on offer solutions oriented thinking. I love that. And so I think that's a clean segue and you're dipping into it in terms of where you started, um, 
having a lot of career focus in investment banking and something that was predictable and then getting out. It sounds like there's a really interesting story there in terms of punching out of investment banking. Do you want to share a little bit more about what that looked like, who you spoke with, and what were some of the parameters you were operating with as you made that transition? You know, I think it kind of goes back to relates to what you just said, that you you came from an engineering background. And prior to business school, I had worked somewhat briefly, uh, I was maybe three years, I guess, for um, in the semiconductor uh, universe. And it was a bit of tech bubble associated with that. And so uh, I had a skill set that married very well with science at that time. And I still enjoy applying that skill set. So MBAs, business, uh, the concepts of marketing, the concepts of financial structuring are all kinds of things that need to be built around, building blocks that go around science, whether it's a new technology, uh, some new way of doing something, uh, maybe it's uh, something more open-ended. But before business school, the that particular industry had been semiconductors. And I worked with Motorola. I was the contractor to Motorola and uh, in their semiconductor unit. And at that time, they were making razor phones and um, flash memory because of the Japan experience that helped in terms of uh, helping them communicate to different markets. And at that time, I, I had a fantastic mentor. Her name was Andy Cunningham. And she um, was a big part of the Bluetooth launch. And so we had a team where I was a very junior member of this team that launched Bluetooth at the time, which was a very nerdy technology mm-hmm. for the moment. It, it was not ever supposed to be called Bluetooth. It was competing with a de facto standard called 802.11b, which is the RF technology, to, you know, computer to computer to communication. And Bluetooth was the Motorola engineering team's um, in-house project name. And they ended up going with this. It was some sort of Viking uh, legend name, I think. And they ended up going with this as the actual product name, branded name, which was unheard of. You never used the nerdy engineering project name Mm -hmm. for the broader market reveal. But seeing her go through that process, seeing the team kind of, accept it and work with Motorola to um, to bring that out into the mainstream and seeing the public react to it. It was so obvious that it was easier for, for the average person's mind to think of it as just a, a cartoony type of technology idea than to, than to look at it as a hardwired functional computer idea. So it it worked. It became the standard almost overnight, um, and the other technology fell away. So this this idea of working with science and the idea of taking the principles of business and applying it in the context of science and then with a framework of science has really kind of always attracted me a lot I, because I see the need there and I see the possibilities there. I came out of business school working for JP Morgan. And at the time it was, it was a very competitive field. Um, It was not a glamorous field. I had, especially as a woman, people saying, why do you want to do this? And I only just wanted to do the hardest thing there was to do, you know, the most competitive thing there was to do. And at some point um, 
I let that go because I realized it, it didn't draw the passion in me that I wanted to be stirring. I got a call from a Rice classmate who said, you know, this isn't quite the right opportunity for me because of X, Y, Z, but, you know, it might be the right opportunity for you. And so I joined a very small team of guys who were startup in the energy business, but had kind of serial startups. And again, being a junior member of their team, I have no issue being a junior member because if you're at the table and you're part of the discussions, you're part of the decision-making uh, process, you're going to learn the most. And I um, started with about 15 folks originally at a company called Petrohawk in 2004. And that's a pretty long story, but in the at the risk of sounding like Mr. Good Old Days, it really was at the time to solve a problem, which was that the U.S. had been reliant upon coal in our electricity plants and for power generation. We still were extremely reliant, even as recently as to the early 2000s, on the coal industry for producing our power. And at that moment, the idea of using natural gas for the majority of the U.S.'s electricity production um, didn't seem possible until some of these discoveries. And so this team had um, invested a lot in science and geophysics and geology, and they let the scientists just go. They let them go. If you had an idea, you got money, and you tried. They trusted these these guys enough to come back to the table with some entrepreneurial spirit and everyone had a little skin in the game and what they came back with ultimately were um, the Haynesville shale and the Eagleford shale. Interesting. I love the intersection with, as you're saying, investing in science and their ideas and then, and mashing that up with entrepreneurial spirit, as you're saying, do you feel, I mean, to your point about the good old days, do you feel that that we've retained some of that you know that methodology that you just described uh, today, or has that fallen away and we need to go back to that? You know, talk to us about where your head is at with that in terms of how we solve problems, you know, inside of the the energy space. The energy space is addicted, in my opinion, to a very unique aspect of American law, which is mineral rights. It, the U.S. has the most open liberal policy when it comes to what landowners receive and retrieve from exploiting their own property from for energy sources. Uh, you don't see that anywhere else in the world. In, in Canada, you, you're giving most of it to the government. In other parts of the world, the government owns it outright anyway. So what ended up being the real birthplace, conceptual birthplace of independent oil and gas, which was the entrepreneurial spirit to go and work out where are the reserves, how does it get produced, where does capital flow, how does it go to the end market? What ended up being that now, today, is a stagnation around creativity in energy. And so you know, it, it reminds me the parallel would be kind of owning warehouses in the real estate business or owning some class A office space or let's say class C office space. At this point, you know, you can make that analogy as well. 
if you're owning an oil and gas asset, but there's not something new coming to it, some new technology, some new investment in the way you're doing it, um, maybe even tack on idea about energy in, in general, um, if you're not investing in a broader portfolio of energy, um, maybe power cells or something that you know is going to be the next thing for energy production. If you're just relying on the fact that you own an asset, you're no different and no better than the guy who's just got an inventory of warehouse space, office space, and no way to move it. You just, you are in a box and <laughs> you've lost the concept of entrepreneurialism and energy. So there's a lot of, of companies out there sitting on warehouse space. And I lost interest. I, I hate to even say that. That's such a, a harsh thing to say. But what drove me was the chemistry between myself, other members of the team, most of which were science-based, and what we were doing there, what we, how we were functioning as a team. You know, there's this, something I read that was, um, if, you, if you find you have really good chemistry with somebody you know, maybe you're not supposed to date them. Maybe you're not supposed to marry them. Maybe you're supposed to open a taco truck together. You know, there's something to be said about the purpose of having chemistry with someone. And our team really had that chemistry of we knew what we were doing. We knew why we were doing it. And we were able to just move. When it was time to move, we moved. One story that kind of comes to mind is when we knew that the geologists were right about the Haynesville. And it, I mean, it's so hard to get in the Wayback Machine and imagine a time when we didn't know what the Haynesville shell was. We didn't know where the, where the gas was. Um, we didn't know the footprint. We didn't know the core, none of it. Um, but we had a concept from our geologists that um, it was time to move on this. And other companies, Chesapeake was one, were also getting wind of this. They were they were whiffing out this idea, geologic idea, because these guys talk to each other and they compare seismic and, you know, there's all kinds of conversations that are going on in the backdrop. So I do remember very specifically the moment when Steve Harrod, who's a brilliant uh, business development guy, uh, who I believe is the CEO of Grizzly now, he comes very loudly down the hall. And he was like, it's time to go get what you can get, get everything you can. And we had enough chemistry within our team to know what our jobs were at that moment. Um, Chesapeake was probably doing the same thing, but they were doing it very differently, which goes back to this concept of it isn't what you're doing. It's how you're doing it. So our approach at that moment with the chemistry that we had Within three days, I had billboards all over Shreveport. Shreveport's not a big town, and it's not difficult to cover in billboards. And the number, it said basically, like, we want to lease your property, and here's the number to call. And the number rang into my office directly. So, you know, I, my job at the company was, was finance. It was investor relations. It was not landman. But... We needed to organize and we needed to go about this and approach this in a really centralized way to, that optimized our ability to get biggest pieces of land. Chesapeake, on the other hand, with the same opportunity, and this, this is how they did it, 
they hired as many landmen as they could. And they sent them out like an army of guys to go and lease this property within a, a lasso that they had created on their map. And this army of landmen being, you know, landmen, they parked their car in Shreveport proper in town and they start knocking on doors. And they want to just knock on as many doors as possible because of how they're getting paid, compensated, rewarded, whatever. So they end up with a portfolio that's very close to town, which is not what you want if you can avoid it, uh, actually in the city limits. And they end up with a lot of like 0. 0.25, 0. 0.5 acre, one acre, you know, and they have a gazillion property owners, you know, royalty owners. Whereas we ended up with, our average was about 44 acres. Um, we ended up with some that were thousands of acres. We ended up with some that were, you know, hundreds of acres, but we got it outside of the city limits um, for the most part. And we were able to streamline this because we had it all coming into a database into my office with an assistant. And we would just prioritize how much property do you have? Okay, well, if, you know, we could sort this Google sheet or Excel sheet at the time and send the guy out to talk to you and he'll make a deal with you. And so we ended up with more property than Chesapeake, but we also ended up with better quality property in terms of the metrics that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So do you see what I'm trying to say, though? Mm-hmm. It, it was very much about the approach. It, it was because we knew we had a problem to solve um, and we had the existing chemistry to get it done. Uh, we were able to move on that very quickly and in the right in the right way, as opposed to a larger, more stagnant corporate that was a little bit more stuck in their box and how they did things ultimately ended up in translating into billions of dollars at differential in value, literally. That, that shows that just the value of, to your point, you know, getting out of the box and just really just a good strategy, right? <laughs> you know, it's, hey, instead of just taking what we currently have and then just trying to, you know, push that out as, as hard as possible, like you said, in the case of Chesapeake, approaching that problem space, um, more open-minded, essentially, and just getting better results with, with a lot less effort. Yeah, but David, who has time to sit around and drop a strategy? You know what I mean? Like, a, <laughs> yeah. if you're something, if you're doing something that's tech driven, if you're doing something where the timing is everything, if you're doing something that's on the cusp of, if you if you are right in the moment where you should be to take advantage of an opportunity, you don't have time to sit around and drop a strategy. Yeah. yeah, I'm finding myself in a situation now where I'm working in a situation where there's there's just no time to come up with yeah. that documentation and you know let's journal it and like yeah the chemistry has to be there and you have to be able to move on it so I look for those opportunities and I, I back to the original concept here the energy space is lacking those opportunities right now of course there's other things to do there's a lot of workout there's a lot of reorganization I've done some of that it 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 really does appeal to a lot of people and it's important work, by the way. It's important for our capital markets um, to be straightened out and redirected. So I don't discount that kind of work. It is just, it does not juice me up personally. And Joan, I think we'd be remiss not to focus on what uh, you're currently working on, what those projects look like. So would you like to peel the onion on that a little bit more for us? 
Sure. I um, work in the area of strategy consulting, but that can be a wide range of things. It depends on the needs of the client. And all of my clients currently are in the science uh, realm. So that's satisfying kind of my personal uh, con- continuity or continuum around uh, providing this these building blocks as I have in the corporate world, but as an individual um, and independently working with clients to help them communicate, leverage, attract capital and support and community for their science-based or tech-based solutions. Very broadly speaking, I mean, even going back to business school and then to today, can you share a little bit about your perspective on, you know, how much risk you've been able to take and then how do you make sure that you're you know, doing that balance with work and family, that, that dance in a manner that's, you know, commensurate with, you know, your professional and your, your family needs. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I've failed for sure. I have failed and I don't shy away from other people who have failed. Um, I think that there's a difference between taking risk and failing and then just having like straight up adult ADD where you can't really focus on uh, a path and commit to it. So very, very different. You know, there's there's one thing when you see a resume that has a lot of really interesting things and then another one where it's just somebody jumping from job to job and industry to industry and they can't really commit to a purpose. Um, but the best thing about uh, my career has been that it's opened up some opportunities for me to do some things that I am passionate about. Um, I was able to go back to my hometown, Mobile, Alabama, uh, work for, um, uh, initiate uh, work on a grant that had been given to the city by Bloomberg Philanthropies. And we ended up doing some really cool things that uh, had an impact nationally. It was um, essentially a project to uh, manage blight and blighted properties and the city uh it's a very old historic city mobilist and uh, has had a colorful past. And so you have a lot of structures just left over from different time periods uh, that have been neglected and have kind of causing there not to be a lot of momentum and interest in different parts of the city. I'll just dive in quickly on that because there's more to it, but the idea of solving problems and finding purpose around problem solving it doesn't always have to be get rich. It doesn't always have to be, you know, it could just be, I'll feed my family for a year. There's, there's a lot of people trying to swing for the fences. And that is a different type of risk. Um, that maybe is a little bit of more of a VC model. Um, that might work out for the VC. It doesn't always work out for the risk taker and the small businesses. Um, that end up spending time and, and maybe are just part of a statistical outcome type of um, landscape. But uh, being able to take a risk to do something that you're passionate about and that you personally want to solve a problem around is the right kind of risk. Um, I wanted my kids to see me do something uh, that had a different purpose. Uh, that they could touch and feel, that they could see with their own eyes. You know, they spent plenty of time in my office. They spent plenty of time going on road shows with me. Um, but that was different. It was a little bit more distant to them. And so I've tried to put things in front of them that they could get closer to. And that in particular was one of those things. Uh, the travel that we've done, either whether it was business or pleasure, I've also 
felt was a big uh, piece of education for them in terms of seeing and being part of um, different parts of the world, different ways of thinking to expand maybe their opportunity set one day. So risk just takes different forms. Um, understanding and being realistic about who you really are in the equation. Um, you know, I love working with banks. I love working with um, the folks that mitigate the risk because their literal their literal job is to is to look at you, investors, shareholders. They're looking at you as a form of risk and a form of payoff, whatever it is. So I love working with them from that perspective, just be able to communicate to them, is this risk going to pay off? Is it going to pay off for me as the person taking it? Is it going to pay off for you as the person investing in it or lending to it? The relationship of risk is is awesome. And that's what our country's really founded upon. And uh, I don't I don't necessarily the reason I brought up the VC model is um, that it it has more it pushes the risk off to I believe it pushes the risk off to the uh, actor um, because the VC is able to have more portfolio stance. Uh, private private equity is not very different than that, by the way, in, in the concept of risk and the portfolio stance. If you fail, there's going to be someone in the portfolio that doesn't. And we're just going to adjust for the factor between or the difference between your failure and the one that succeeded. Well, I don't know. That doesn't really work for me. That's a really interesting perspective. I love that. I feel like we could have a whole nother podcast on what you just shared there. Um, but, you know, if we can maybe land on, you know, maybe one last topic or, you know, pass the conch shell back to you for maybe a broader message. I, I, typically we land on, either an I'll have you know moment, or in this case, maybe just is there a message as as we look at and sort of collate everything you shared as we connect more and more with the Rice Business alumni community, is there any message you'd like to share to the, to the broader community writ large uh, before we adjourn here? Well, I guess, I guess it kind of goes back to family, you know, and I, and I kind of tie that to the chemistry that you might have with your business family. Um, Rice was a family. And that goes, we're, we're on a road trip together and um, we're having similar but disparate experiences on that trip. And I don't think it's any different than when you commit and find a business family to work with in the hopes that your experiences are going to pay off. You know, everyone's in it for uh, a personal payoff, whether that's a monetary or something that is purpose-driven, which I think is super important if you can marry the two um, or not, or just do something with purpose. Um, you know, but just to the, the commitment to a family and to the relationships that you have um, with your classmates, with your business family, with your own family, that these all continuously work together. I think I mentioned before we got on that you know, I had a very long labor with my first baby and there were rice classmates that came to visit me, uh, you know, very casually, but in the hospital. I mean, there was no separation between my education, the different jobs that I've had, um, my own personal family and my children know all of these people. Um, 
they still have a relationship. I, I texted Floyd the other day and he asked about the nickname for, you know, my oldest son, he's nicknamed for him. You know, if you cannot marry all of these things and, and, and carry those relationships with you throughout your life, you're really missing out on the treasure. That is, that really is the treasure and the purpose behind the problems that you've solved in your career, the things that you've done that you felt were good, being able to share that with all of these other people who, who brought you there or who had something to do with the outcome. That's really kind of, as I enter into middle age, I guess, feels the most satisfying to me that I still have all of these connections. They're not leveraging connections. They're not a network to be leveraged. They're actual real relationships and they're my family. Um, I think that it's, uh, extremely important to make that a goal. Uh, that's a message for people who are in business school as well as people who are out of business school. Um, it's extremely satisfying to have that later in life. Wow, Joan, that, that was spectacular. I really enjoyed this time and I can't wait for other folks to, to tune in uh, to that. Um, just being able to skillfully tie everything together, as you're saying, with the business connection, personal, everything in between and um, and keeping that going and just enjoying those connections just for the sake of those connections versus having to wring something out of it. It just, it just feels right. So thank you for sharing that, Joan. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care, Joan. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Christine Dobbin, and David Drew Gleaver. 